0: and turn to Colossians chapter 1. My wife uh, has made me super self-conscious about saying the word Colossians, because apparently, you know, I'm from the Bahamas, and we don't do gutturals well, so my Cs sound like Gs, and my Gs sound like um, Cs, so apparently I've been saying (laughs) Goloshans when I was supposed to be saying Colossians. Um, And I might have even said it wrong there, but... um, (laughs) But you all know what I mean. You know, God is merciful. He, he sort of overlooks my, my foibles and, um, and still works independently. So the book of Colossians, chapter 1, and we're going to look at this text. I want to say one thing um, in advance. Um, <clears throat> the Food Network is this coming Saturday, and the reason why I mention that is the Lord is really blessing our Food Network. We've added several new members. Um, I think recently someone even came to know the Lord through the Food Network. And, um, and I don't know if you're looking for a ministry to be a part of. I know we all have incredibly busy schedules, but I thought I would still put it out there that if you're interested and want to be a part of the Food Network, Food Network is going to be this coming Saturday. I think they meet at 9 or 10, um, and we could send out a blast and let you know exactly when. But um, the Lord is doing tremendous things there. And even if you can't make it, please do pray as we seek to minister to the people in our community by providing food to the to those that are in need. All right, Colossians chapter one. And I'm actually going to read I know in your bulletin it's printed nine through twenty three, but I'm going to read verse 13 um, down through twenty three instead, because I think it captures Um, the full scope of what we're going to be dealing with today. Hear now the word of the living God. He, and that is meaning the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. All things, and in him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Well, All flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in your being, full of wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. It is because you are who you are that we are able to stand before you today, to worship, to proclaim your name. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the glory of the cross, the glory of the resurrection, and the power that you have given your people to walk rightly before you. And so now, Lord, we pray that you might come and give us wisdom, Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Heal our hearts. As the song says, you are what our hearts long for, need. May that be true today. Bless us now, your people, in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen and amen. For those of you that have just been joining us, and just as a recap, um, we've been going through a series entitled The Treasury of Christ. And the main point of the series is to say that because Christ is preeminent, which that's what this text is talking about, because Christ is preeminent, that means first and foremost that there's no one like him, that he is what the ancient theologians called the ends perfectissimum, the most holy, perfect, powerful being that there ever was and ever will be. And in him, we live and move and have our being. That's what this text is telling us. That he is absolutely 100% preeminent. Now, the reason why I bring that up, and again, we will go over that over and over again in this particular book, is because this is what Paul is most concerned about. In every generation, there is a danger to make Christianity something other than the person and work of Jesus Christ. Something always vies for the preeminence of Christ. Um, <clears throat> there was a, a reverend by the name of Richard Halverson. He was the chaplain to the U.S. Senate from between 1981 to 1994. And he is quoted as saying this. And this is so important because he warns us of the danger of making Christ Uh, less or diminishing Christ in the gospel. He says, this is what happens as Christianity began to spread. He said, first of all, Christianity began on Palestinian soil with a relationship with a person, and his name was Jesus Christ. Then he said it moved to Greek soil, where it became a philosophy. Then he said it went to Roman soil, and there it became an institution, And then he said it went to British soil, and there it became a card-carrying cultural movement. And then he said it went to American soil, and there it became an enterprise, something to be packaged and sold. Notice what Halverson is saying. He's saying that everywhere that Christianity goes, there is a temptation, culturally, To make Jesus Christ not as preeminent as he needed to be. When it went to Greek soil, what did they do? They turned Christ into a philosophy. Now, I'm not opposed to philosophy. Philosophy is good. But it's not preeminent. Christ is. And when it went, of course, uh, to Roman soil, they turned it into a Christian institution. I'm not against Christian institutions, but Christian institutions cannot be preeminent. And then he said it went to British soil and became a card-carrying church culture. I'm not against developing church culture, but it cannot be preeminent. It cannot be preeminent. And then he said it became, uh, when it went to American soil, it became an enterprise, something to be packaged and sold. And I have a problem with that, of course. Right? <laughs> like, you know, we, we ought not to be packaging and selling anything. At least not when it comes to Christianity. We cannot commodify Christianity. We cannot. Look, when I stand up here every Sunday morning, I am not trying to sell you anything. I'm not a salesman. I'm not trying to say, hey, look look at Jesus. Isn't he shiny and new? And he'll change your life. Now, he will. But that's not essentially what I'm doing. I'm not trying to sell Christ to you. Christ does not need to be sold. He is preeminent. He is above all things. And if that is so, then that person demands all of your devotion, time, and energy. You cannot add anything to him, and you cannot take away anything from him. He is preeminent. He's above all things. That's the point of the book of Colossians. That's what Paul says over and over again in this book. And Paul had to establish the preeminence of Christ because in the book of Colossians, at the church at Colossae, there were people that were trying to add to that message that you have to eat this, that you have to do this, that you have to go here, that you have to worship on this day. And Paul says over and over again, You do not have to do that because Christ is preeminent. He's above all things, and he ought not, and we should not add to him. Now, what I want to do for the rest of our time together is I want to show you how Paul establishes Christ's preeminence in this text. First of all, through the person of Christ, and second of all, through the work of Christ. The person of Christ is seen from verse 15 down to verse 20. And then a the work of Christ from 21 to 22. First of all, the person of Christ. Notice verse number 15. This is what he says about Jesus Christ. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, there are many that take that verse and claim that Jesus is not God. I'll never forget, I was in my office, not here, but at my last, uh, the church that I pastored last. I was in my office, and the secretary came, and she knocked on the door, and I said, yes. And she said, Pastor Dennis, there are three men here to see you. I said, great, let them in. And so they walked in, and it turns out that they were three Jehovah Witnesses. And they came to me, and they said, hey, um, we would like to have a Bible study with you. And I was like, praise the Lord from whom all blessings flow. You know, I don't have to go for this. They're coming to me. And so sure enough, uh, we sat down and we opened our Bibles. And I said, well, where would you like to start? You came to me. I'm on your dime. Just tell me where you'd like to start. And so they said, well, um, I want to know what you know about the gospel, about Jesus Christ. And I said, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is God, God in flesh, very God and very God. To which they said, well, you know, that's where we differ. We believe that Jesus is a God, but we don't believe that Jesus is the God. And I said, that's interesting. And so I took my Bible and I said, you know, I could take you to text to text, but I just want to ask you a question. I want to take you to a text in the Bible and I want to ask you a question. So I turned to John 8 and, and read them a passage. And I turned to John 10 and read them a passage. There are two passages that I read to them. The first one in John 8, where Jesus says that he uh, was God, that before Abraham was I am. I said, Jesus said that he was I am, the pre or self incarnate God. And then I took them to John 10 and I said, Jesus says, me and the Father are one. And I said, in both instances, the Jews took up stones and to try and stone him and I said to them please tell me why did the Jews pick up stones to stone him if Jesus wasn't claiming to be God of very God why did they pick up stones to stone him? you see everybody claimed to be God Caesar claimed to be God Festus claimed to be God even their drunk uncle Malachi claimed to be God right Everybody claimed to be God. That wasn't the issue. At at root was what Jesus was claiming. He was claiming to be God, very God. And so I asked them, please tell me, why did these Jews try to stone Jesus? Now, to their credit, to their credit, they said, you know, I don't know. And I said, that's fine. Take your time and come back. And we'll have a further conversation. Now, unfortunately, they never came back. I wish they did. Because when, if they had thought about it long enough and hard enough, they'll realize that the Jews recognized something that they didn't. That the reason why they picked up stones to stone Jesus was they understood exactly what Jesus was saying and what Jesus was claiming. He was claiming to be God very God. That's what this text is saying. He is the image of the visible God. He is not a copy of God. That's not what the text is saying. The text is not telling us that Jesus is a good person like God. No, if if Paul wanted to say that Jesus was similar to God, he would have used another word. He would have used the word schema, which simply means pattern after God. But he used the word icon, image, The very image of God. That the same person that is the father is the same person that's in the son. The same qualities. Now you might be sitting there and saying to yourself, well, Pastor Dennis, aren't I made in the image of God? Well, yes, you are. But you are not God. Not in the same way as Jesus is God. You have, all, you have all what we call the communicable attributes of God. You can love, you can know truth, you can have wisdom. But Jesus has both the communicable and incommunicable attributes of God. Not only does he have love, not only does he have wisdom, but he has omnipresence. And he also has omnipotence. And that's the point that Jesus is trying, uh, Paul is trying to establish here. That he is the very image of God. And then Paul goes, back, Paul goes on. Not only is he in the image of God, but Paul says he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, here again, here again, people look at this and say, well, firstborn, that means he was made. But That's not what firstborn means. Firstborn in this context doesn't mean that Jesus was created. It means that Jesus has authority. That's why if you look down um, at verse number 18... The same statement is, mo- is used again, that he's the firstborn from the dead. So first of all, he's the firstborn of creation, meaning he has authority over every part of God's creation. But next it says he has firstborn from the dead, meaning Jesus Christ was the one that rose again. And now because he has eternal life, we have eternal life as well. So it's not only that Jesus has authority over creation, physical creation, but he's also the firstborn from the dead, meaning he has authority over spiritual, everything spiritual as well. That's the point that Paul is trying to hammer over and over again. And then there's this question, an important question. But well, why is Paul making such a big deal about that? Why is it that Jesus Christ has to be in the image of God Why does Jesus Christ have to be the firstborn of all creation and the firstborn of the dead, from the dead as well? Well, it's because of what he says next in verse number 16. He says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Here's the point that Paul is trying to make. Paul establishes the deity of Christ to say that he is God of very God. He's in charge over all the physical creation that we see, and he's in charge of all the spiritual creation that that we see. And to prove that point, Paul says that he created all things. Now right here, Paul is anticipating objections, and here's the objection. Everyone that lived during that time, they would grant that someone had authority, right? They would grant that someone had authority, but they always wondered, does that authority extend to everything? You know, if you had a ruler, their authority would extend to, pro, to a particular province. Or if you had a ruler, their authority would extend only to this area of land. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus Christ's authority is not limited to one particular geographic location. You could almost see Paul as he writes this, well, they might think that Jesus Christ only has authority over earth. And so Paul writes, no, 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 heaven and earth. And maybe you might be thinking that Jesus Christ only has authority over things that are visible. And Paul says, no, 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 visible and invisible. And then you might be thinking, well, Jesus Christ only has authority over thrones or dominions. And Paul says, no, 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 thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities over all things. All things. There's nothing that Christ doesn't have complete 100% authority over. That's the power of the God that we worship, that there is nothing outside of his control or authority. All things are before him, and all things are over him, and he is in control of all things. Now, again, we have to ask ourselves a principal question. Why does this matter? Why does it matter that Christ has authority over all things? One commentator, I think, has his finger on the pulse. He said that the time that Jesus lived in, these people were riddled by fear and anxiety. That's how they lived. And in fact, Jesus highlights this. If you go to Matthew 6-7, Jesus makes this point in his preamble to, to the Lord's Prayer. As Jesus, right before Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer, he says, and when you pray, do not heap up Um, empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for the many words. What is Jesus saying there? Jesus is giving a picture of the Gentiles, and here's the picture of the Gentiles. They constantly prayed to all sorts of different gods. They, They had a God for everything. They had a God for their crops. They had a God for fertility. They had a God for good fortune. And whenever they wanted something, they would often pray to this God. And Jesus is saying, don't be like them because they have no assurance. They're praying to all these different gods. They're so filled with anxiety and fear. But Jesus says that we are not like that. We have a God who's in charge of all things. We don't have to look anywhere else but the one and true living God. And notice with me in verse number 17. This God who's in charge of all things Holds all things together. If you were to ask me what is the most powerful statement in this section, that's it. That here's a God that holds everything. Your life, my life, the world, everything that we see. This God holds it all together. A few years ago, I was listening to a podcast on um, the Katrina. It was on the disaster of Katrina, and the podcast set, um, had settled on this uh, hospital, and in the hospital, you had all these medical professionals, brilliant people, talented people, gifted people, administrators, and their entire job was to keep the people in this hospital alive. And there was a certain point um, within the podcast where they started talking about how all of the supplies started um, becoming less and less. And all these bright and talented and gifted people were now placed in a position of deciding who would live and who would die. All of them were placed in this position. And they started talking about the system that they would go through. That, OK, well, if you're this age, if you're like 40 or lower and you're, you're healthy, you, you live. And if you were 55 or 60 and above and you had these um, comorbidities, you died. And they would write write it on a list, a little little three-by-five card or whatever they had, and they would put it on the person's bed. And they did this throughout the entire hospital. But here's the point that I want to make. When it came to actually doing it, these people, as one person put it, we lost it. We couldn't do it. We couldn't end the person's life. And there was one person in particular, she was uh, tasked to do it, and she ended up um, administering um, a particular medication that stopped the patient's heart and the patient died. And here's what the lady said to me that was striking. She said, at that point I fell apart and I couldn't keep it together. Deciding who would live and die was a godlike task, and me as a mere mortal shouldn't have to make it. Do you see the point that she's making? It's a powerful point. It's a godlike task to run the world. It is. Who lives? Who dies? Who gets resources? Who doesn't? All of these things, this is a godlike task, and she was saying that us as mere mortals should never be given that responsibility because there's no way we could possibly steward that well. And here it is in this hospital. You have all of these talented, brilliant, gifted, educated people falling apart, not being able to hold it all together. Why? Because they're not God. It required God to do it, not them. And the point that I want to put before you is this. Doesn't matter how gifted you are, how talented you are, how educated you are, how resourceful you are, it's a God like task to shepherd and run your life. And you are ill equipped to do it. And so Paul says that it's by him and him alone he holds all. Things together. All things together. Now, some of you that are sitting there can rightly object and say, Pastor Dennis, if Christ holds all things together, like this text says, if he's over all creation, like this text says, whether it's physical or spiritual, if he's over the church, verse 18, like this text says if he is over my entire life, like this text says, if he is holding all things together for his perfect and holy will, like this text says, then why is our world falling apart? Why is the church falling apart? Why is my life falling apart? That's an excellent question. Now, I will say this. The question requires you to understand what the power of God is is for and what the power of God is supposed to do. Because even Jesus' disciples misunderstood the power of God. I don't know if you remember when Jesus said, Hey, I have to die for the sins of man. Do you remember what Peter did? Peter got angry. Peter said, what are you doing? How do you mean you have to die for the sins of men? You don't have to die. You have to set up a kingdom here. You have to set up your rule and authority here. And Jesus looked at him and said, you don't understand why I came. You don't understand what the power of God is for. And whenever we look at God and say, God, if you're in charge, if you're holy, if you're supposed to have all things In the palm of your hand, holding all things together, yet everything's falling apart. We misunderstand what the power of God is meant for. And thankfully, this text actually tells us what the power of of God's power uh, and God's work is. Notice with me in verse 21 and 22. Here's why God has power. Here's what the power of God is used for. You might be saying, hey, my life is falling apart. The church is falling apart. The world is falling apart. But this tells us what Jesus' power is supposed to be used for. It says in verse 21, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What is the power of God used for? Is it to make sure that you never have tribulation? No. In fact, what did Jesus say? In this life you shall have what? Tribulation. So let's not be surprised when we do. Is the power of God to make sure that we never have divisions in the church? No, because he said divisions will come. Is the power of God to make sure that you always have everything you need? No. Because you have to suffer depravity to some degree. No, the power of God is designed and set apart so that you can be reconciled to God. And that's what Jesus is doing, reconciling all of us before God. What is the power of God used for? It is to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's what the power of God is used for. And beloved, that's what He was doing. It's a godlike task to present you faultless before Himself and blameless. Another way of looking at this is, it's a godlike task to present you clean and polished before God. You know, when my wife um, and I had very small children, uh, we had about, like, we had like three and four right which for those of you that don't know what that means we had 3 children in 4 years which is a godlike task in and of itself <laughs> I tell you that right but but we made it happen and and it was so funny that we would try to to get them <laughs> ready Sunday morning to present them in church and if you've never had to take 3 young people 4 years and younger and get them clean and put together and get them in church. You, you don't understand the power and grace of God, right? Because I promise you, it is a Godlike task to get all three of them up and fed and ready and, and, and then send them to church so they look somewhat presentable. Now, sometimes they have two different shoes on, sometimes they're not matching. Those of you as parents know this, sometimes their hair is not fixed. But at that point, you don't care. You just want to present them in church. But notice the high bar that the Bible sets on Jesus. That as broken and as flawed and as messed up as we are, the Bible says it's his role and responsibility to reconcile us to God. Not just that, but to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You know, I did some math. As I was looking at this, I said, well, you know, if I sinned, if I sinned three times a day, which if I'm in like rush hour traffic, it's more than that. But let's just say, on average, three times a day if I sinned for 60 years, do you know how many sins that are? Some of you are gifted. You could probably knock that out and earth. I calculated it. So it was right around 68,000 something. I can't remember what it is. 68,000 sins. Now multiply that by the billions of people that the Bible says that Jesus will have to present faultless before God. Now do you begin to, in some degree, understand the power of God? Look, you're not easy to present faultless before the throne. I know some of you think you are, but you're not. Right? It takes a lot of work. And yet we have a Savior who the Bible says is more than able not just to do it with you, but for all of us in this church who named the name of Christ, all of us in the churches out there that named the name of Christ. That's the power of God. That's where his power is seen. Stop looking at Christ to fulfill all of your needs because the Bible tells us the one need he has promised to fulfill, and that is to present you faultless, and holy before the Lord. Yes, I know, I know. We all could sit down and think about all the sins that we struggle with, all the sins that prevent us from living the life that we want to live before the Lord. But, but, that's not your responsibility ultimately. It's the responsibility of Jesus Christ and he said that he will do it. Now, the last thing I want you to see is look at verse 23 down. Paul says something that I've... I've been I've been looking at this now for the past week and I was like, Paul, what what are you saying here? If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which you have proclaimed in the creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. What are you talking about? You already told us that you're going to present us faultless. What do you mean if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard? Okay, here's, here's how to understand this, and I'll close with this. If Christ is preeminent, if he is holy, and he has promised that if you put your faith and trust in him, he will present you um, holy and blameless before the Lord. What Paul is saying here is that it is almost as if this reality is already true. That your obedience has been secured by Christ himself. That you will, in many sense, you will continue in faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. That is great news. That is great news. The hope of the gospel is that Christ has done the work. He has secured salvation for us. And now all we need to do is walk in light of it. Beloved, that's the hope that Paul is is putting out before us in our understanding of God. The big takeaway is simply this. Live in that hope. Live in that hope. Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful message of the gospel. That we certainly have a savior, Jesus Christ, who is God of very God. Light of lights, who by his power has secured salvation for his people, and by his power, we as your people are made whole, that we are healed. Thank you that those of us that name the name of Christ have that hope, and I pray for the one that does not, that they might come to you as Lord and personal Savior, confess their sins, and receive the healing that can only come through the power of the gospel, We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen and amen.